All right, I'll invite you to take a copy of the scripture and either turn or swipe to John chapter 2. And uh, as you do that, I, I mentioned earlier as we began our service that uh, the, the uh, call to worship pa- uh, passage was from Cornerstone's reading plan. I'll just highlight the fact that we've got February readings in your bulletin. Uh, if you need extra copies, they are around. And maybe you think, hey, well, you know, I didn't start in January or I'm already behind. Let me encourage you not to let, um, not to wait till next January to start reading the Bible. Um, and there's a, there's a purpose to encouraging us as a church family to read, you know, follow a similar plan or same plan. And if you miss a day, then either double down and catch up or just move on and stay with the readings as you can. The, the whole idea is that, you know, as if we're together reading the scripture um, and we come across something maybe that's either personally challenging to us or if we have questions, hey, now we have, we have a community who's just read that as well. And so we can uh, engage in that uh, discussion and growth uh, and grow together as we, uh, as we engage with God's word to us. So you pick up, uh, this is based on the uh, uh, Life Journal reading plan. If you read your Bible on your tablet or on your phone, you can uh, most likely, uh, depending on the app you use, you can find Life Journal, search Life Journal reading plan, sign up for it, and you'll actually get notifications and it'll come right up with this reading. So you don't even have to turn your Bible. It's that easy um, because we are that lazy. But anyhow, it's a good plan. It's a really good plan. And uh, it's, you know, about most days, it's about 10 minutes of reading, give or take, depending on your speed. Um, and it'll, it'll take you through the entire scripture in a year. And I think the New Testament twice, actually. So it's a great, it's a great plan. Um, so I encourage you to do that. So if you're at John chapter 2, we are going to do the second half of that chapter. We are just flying along the Gospel of John. We're going to do a whole chapter in two weeks. It took us five weeks to do chapter 1. This week, we're going to finish chapter 2 after only two weeks. All right, so Jesus clearing the temple. Uh, I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. This is uh, Jesus' Chuck Norris moment. It's a great story. It's uh, one uh, event that's actually recorded in all four of uh, the Gospels, of the biographies of Jesus. So let's read this together. When it was almost time, this is verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all, the temp- to- drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it's written, Zeal for your house will consume me. It's from the Psalms. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need a man's testimony about him, for he knew what was in a man. This is God's word to us this morning. So if you remember last week, if you were here with us, and if you weren't here, you can either catch up on the podcast or um, or not, whatever. Um, but first half of chapter 2, or F.F. Bruce, one of the commentators I've been reading on this, says that in, G- uh, in John chapter 2, uh, Jesus is clearly saying that uh, he is replacing religion with something better. That John chapter 2, if according to F.F. Bruce, is all about Jesus replacing religion with something better. Remember that uh, the first half of John chapter 2 was this first of seven signs of Jesus in John, where he was at a wedding and he turned water into wine. But how the focus, we saw last week, how John really focuses in on the fact how that Jesus... Um, fills these uh, religious icons, these religious uh, um, pots that were used for ritual cleaning, cleansing, and that is what he used. Those, that's what he filled with water and then turned those into wine. And so he's really, there, there's a message there that he is a, not only the bringer of great joy, but he's, he's, um, he's doing away with these religious rituals because what he will accomplish through his death, through his hour, he refers to in the first half of John, to through his hour will accomplish and will do away with the need for that kind of ritual cleansing because his sacrifice, his death for us, once and for all accomplishes that cleansing. He brings about what, what all these religious rituals were pointing to. And this is after this, he went down to Capernaum, and then it was almost time he goes up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's an elevated city, even though he's going south, he's going up to Jerusalem because it's, it's, on, a, it's on a hill. Um, but there's a connection here between um, this wedding feast miracle and this temple cleansing, this cleansing of the temple, this clearing this, uh, of the temple. Other, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record Jesus cleansing the temple, Jesus clearing out the temple with a whip, right in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. So right in the Holy Week, in the Passion Week of Jesus. But John here is saying it's right near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? It's here in chapter 2. There's a whole another 20 chapters left to go or so. Um, and so what's going on? Is there two, and, and commentators and historians are divided. Maybe Jesus actually did this twice. It's possible he did this three, uh, you know, um, at the beginning of his ministry, and he did it again three years later. That, that's a possibility, and that's probably what um, I would lean towards for various reasons. It doesn't really matter. It could have happened, it could be that John has just moved this here and placed this event in chapter two for kind of literary uh, thematic reasons. Maybe he's, he wants us to see the connection between what he did at Cana at the wedding, turning water into wine, and what he's doing here in Jerusalem in the, in the, in the temple. And that could be as well. But I think there's a connection. And we'll see that connection as we go through this morning as to why, why it could make sense that John actually just takes this event from later in the life of Jesus and moves it and puts it right next to uh, the sign at the wedding feast. But if we just get down to it, and then I'll, I'll try to illustrate this a little bit, 
um, and, and, and work this out a little bit. But I think what John chapter 2 is saying to us, before we get into the details of what actually happened here in Jerusalem, I think what John 2 is saying is that sometimes Jesus fills your table with a feast. Right? We saw that last week as, as, as wine, which is the symbol of, of great joy, which is a gift of God to make the heart of people glad, that sometimes Jesus comes through and he fills your table with a feast. He brings about great joy and great provision. He answers your prayers. He does what you want him to do. He comes through for you and he, and he brings, and, and brings great joy into your life as you celebrate the gifts of, of, that he's given you. But other times, Jesus comes into your life and he flips your table over and he spills everything on the ground. Sometimes Jesus comes into your life and he brings, he fills your table with a feast. And other times he comes and he flips your table over and he spills everything on the ground. He, he, he messes everything up. And he doesn't tell you why he does it. He brings pain into your life. He brings loss into your life. And he doesn't always give you the reason why. And so the first thing I want us to, to uh, examine this story and this, this narrative of Jesus clearing the temple is to think of the authority of Jesus. Because that's what comes into question, right? He, Jesus, he comes into the temple courts and, and he, he's, he's furious. He becomes angry and he takes a whip. And he starts driving people over, and he's flipping tables over. He's freaking out. He's, um, he's not sinning in his anger, but he is angry and violent um, and aggressive. And he's flipping tables, and people are, are running away from him. He's, cle- he's successful in clearing the temple. And so the religious leaders, the temple rulers, come to Jesus and say, what authority do you have to do this? We felt your authority because it was compelling. You, you were successful in what you did. You were able to clear the temple courts. And we saw it in your eyes. We knew that there was an authority. We knew you were able to do it. What authority do you have to do that? And Jesus really speaks in code, right? John kind of interprets it for us. But um, he doesn't really tell the reason why. He does, but he doesn't. He speaks in code, and he's saying, well, actually, actually, this is my house, and I do have the authority here, and we'll get to that. But these people felt his authority first, and then asked the reason why. Why, and why, why he had the, the authority. Now, the authority of Jesus actually comes up at the wedding feast as well, in Cana of Galilee. Remember, Jesus' mother Mary comes to him and says, Hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus kind of responds, It's not my hour yet. My time, my hour has not yet come. He says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time to die, basically. And what he's saying to Mary is, You don't have authority over me. You don't have the authority to tell me what to do. You can go ahead and answer that. That's all right. Um, sorry. (laughs) All right. So he's saying to Mary, you don't have the authority to tell me what to do. I don't take orders from you. I take orders from my heavenly father. And Mary responds appropriately. And he goes, she goes to the servants, you remember, and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Now there's actually, there's an exchange of authority there. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to do what I want to do, not to do what you want me to do. Now, 
it, we don't really think about that because we actually, Jesus ends up doing what, he, what we want him to do, right? He comes through, provides wine, everyone's happy. So we don't really come, the authority of Jesus really doesn't butt up against our desires, and so we, we don't really even notice it. When, when Jesus answers our prayers and gives us what we want, what our hearts are desiring, you know, we're not like, Jesus, what right do you have to give me a healthy child? Right? We don't, we don't really, when he comes through and answers our prayer, we don't really question his authority to do that. But when Jesus comes into our lives and starts flipping the tables and starts messing things up and brings loss and pain and, 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 and um, panic or, or confusion into our life, all of a sudden then we're questioning his authority. All of a sudden we're questioning his authority. They felt his authority first. And what Jesus is basically saying to them is, I do have the right to do this. I do have the right to drive you out. And I have the right to do it without telling you why I'm doing it. And remember the Old Testament story of the life of of a man named Job. Job was a rich, uh, prosperous man, and his life gets turned upside down, right? His life got flipped, turned upside down. Didn't have to move to Beverly Hills or anything, but but Job really spends the entire um, book of Job almost asking God why. Like, why? Is it in vain that I have served you? I've been righteous. I've been doing the right thing. How come my kids died? How come I lost all my wealth? How come this has all happened to you, to me? Right? He's asking God why. Why, why has this come into my life? I need to understand the reason why my tables have been flipped over. And God basically at the end says to Job, Hey, Job, does the lightning consult with you when it decides where it's going to strike on earth? And Job says, oh, now I see. Now I see. You know, as the readers of the book of Job, we actually have some ideas and some reasons why the suffering and sorrow was brought into Job's life. But God never actually tells Job why. God never really reveals to Job what was going on. He just says to Job, I have the authority to bring this sorrow, to bring this trouble into your life because I'm God. And you're not. Now, this is tough for us to swallow. We don't, we want to, like, we're pushing back on this, right? We're resisting this. We don't, we don't really like this. I don't like this, Jesus. But he never tells Job why. And Job says, I see. You see, I think it's critical for us. If we're going to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, it's critical for us to learn to obey God because he's God. Before he tells us the reasons why. Before he tells us why, we have to say, yes, you do have the authority to bring this into my life. You do have the authority to flip my tables. You do have the authority to mess everything up. You do have the right, you do have the, the, the authority and the right to, to bring pain and to bring loss into my life. Because you're God and I'm not. Adam and Eve, when they're created, right? And they, they're living in the Garden of Eden. And there's one rule. Don't eat from this tree. Don't eat the, tr- the, the fruit that grows on this tree. Now, some people have said, well, maybe that fruit was poisonous. Or maybe, there, maybe there's a good reason why Adam and Eve shouldn't have eaten that tree. I think it's arbitrary. I think it was... Don't eat of that tree because I said so. Because I'm God and you're not. 
Because for you to actually follow me, for you to be in right relationship with me as my creation, you need to be in submission to me and understand that I'm God and you're not. And so sometimes we need to obey. It's critical for us to obey God because he's God without necessarily knowing the reasons why he, he's bringing certain things into our life or why he's calling us to obey in this way. Because listen, if you only obey God when you understand why, it's not actually God you're obeying. If you only obey when you understand why, it's yourself you're obeying, not God. Let me illustrate that with... Um, Imagine you are um, just tremendously wealthy. Some of you, it's pretty hard to imagine. Others, not so hard. But you're, you're, a, you're a very wealthy person. But you're single. And yet you, this wealthy man falls in love with this woman. And, and, and they're, they're engaged to be married. Everything's hunky-dory, right? It's paradise. Everything's good. Except... All of a sudden, there's a stock market correction. I love how that we call them corrections now, not crashes, right? Crashes are, po- are negative. Corrections. We're just get, setting things right here, but same thing. And all of a sudden, this man has no, no longer has this tremendous wealth. The correction has wiped it out. Now, imagine this fine young lady says to this man, well, maybe we should call the whole thing off. How does this young man feel about this young woman? It's not me you loved. It's, it's, it's my, it was my wealth. You were just using me for my wealth. It wasn't me you loved. It was my wealth. And it's the same thing with God. It's the, it's the exact analogy that if I will only obey when I understand the reasons why, then I can accept it. And God's saying, I want you to accept it because of who I am. And, you, and some of us say, well, if I could see the reason how this pain, what, what, how this pain will be practical in my life, if I could see how this pain will, will, will be used for good in my life, then I could accept it. Which is another way of saying, if I could see how this loss or this pain or this this event or this obedience, if I could see how that will translate into me reaching my goals, then I can accept it. Then it's not about God, it's about your goals. Right? And God calls us to obey and to accept it because he's God and we're not. Sometimes... When God brings pain, there may be no other reason than for you to submit to him because he's God. And that's hard for us to accept, right? We, some of you are saying, Kevin, go back to last week when God's the bringer of joy and provider of wine. I don't want him flipping over tables in my house. I don't want him rearranging the furniture of my house. Commenting on Job, Tim Keller says this. He says, if God is so great that I can be mad at him for failing to make things the way I want. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I couldn't quite find the quote. If God's so great that I can be mad at him for failing to make things the way I want, 
He also must be great enough to have reasons for this pain and for the sorrow that I can't quite understand. He says you can't have it both ways. Right? Do you catch that? If God is so great that I can be mad at him for allowing this suffering or this pain or this loss or flipping over my tables to happen, if, I, if he's so great that I can be mad at him for that, he must be great enough to, if I can be mad at him for bringing this into my life, he must be strong enough to be able to prevent it, right? Well, if he's strong enough to be able to prevent it, if he's so great that he could have prevented it, that he could have taken it away, he must also be great enough and strong enough and wise enough to have reasons for this suffering that I can't quite understand. You have to have it both ways. If you're mad at him, you also have to grant him the right and the possibility that he has reasons that you can't quite understand or that you don't quite like. But his comprehension and his wisdom, his wisdom doesn't answer to your wisdom, right? And so if he's overturning your tables right now, he has the right to do that. I haven't gotten really in. Again, we want the reason. Why is Jesus turning these tables over, right? We want to know why before we really deal with the authority question. But Jesus never quite says why in this passage. So I'm, you know, so I'm not getting into the details of this text right now because just first I think we need to set the context in that sometimes he brings a feast. Sometimes he fills your table. And brings joy and brings, he does exactly what you want him to do. And other times he flips your table and everything falls on the floor. And for both, he has the right to do that. In both scenarios, he has the right to do that. So now let's look at a little bit more detail as to what's actually going on in, in this text. And, and we'll actually talk about the why. We'll talk about the purpose for which Jesus um, does this. Why is Jesus um, so angry? What's wrong uh, with what's happening here. What's wrong with this scene that, that ignites such anger in the heart of Jesus? Well, to, it, it's really helpful, I think, for us to get a picture of, uh, of what's actually going on there. And so, uh, Rachel, if you'll go to the next slide, we'll have a picture of uh, Jerusalem at the time uh, of Jesus. This is a, we, because of archaeology, we have a pretty good understanding of what Jerusalem was like. So um, I got my, uh, I'm bringing my technology up to the 1990 standard. So I've got my laser pointer here. So there's the temple. You'll see the temple is by far and away the defining feature of the city of Jerusalem. Right? It's the biggest thing. You know, estimates are that the, a quarter of the real estate of Jerusalem was taken up by the temple. The temple was huge. You know, Jerusalem only probably had about sixty to 80,000 permanent residents at the time of Jesus. But during feasts like Passover, like this happened during, you know, the population of Jerusalem would swell to like 300,000 or more. And so Jerusalem, you know, the defining feature of, of Jerusalem is this temple. Now, right below the temple, right beside the temple, is, is what's called the Kidron Valley. And so Jerusalem is built up on a hill. Down is the Kidron Valley, and then up the other side is the Mount of Olives. All right, so keep that, keep that picture in mind as we go to the next slide here, as we ha- get a, a picture of Herod's temple. And again, because of descriptions of Josephus and other Jewish historians and, and some archaeology, we have a really good understanding of what the, the temple would look like at the time of Jesus. And this is what it would look like. And so we have the temple, and, and um, so right 
kind of where you, we're all standing right here. We're in the Kidron Valley, okay? And then up, up in the balcony is the, is the Mount of Olives. And over here is the city of Jerusalem. So we got the outer courts here. So this is the, the, the temple complex. So these courts right in here on either side, that's called the court of the Gentiles, which is where all of this is happening. Which, the story which we read this morning happens in the court of the Gentiles. All right? And then, so that's where um, people from any nation, any, any religious background, um, any ethnicity could come and could worship uh, the God of Israel here in the courts uh, of the Gentiles. If we zoom in a little bit, you, the next slide here. Um, so here, out here is the court of the Gentiles. Through these uh, four doors, or three doors, sorry, is we come into the gate, uh, to the court of women. So Jewish women could come this far, could get into the court of women. On, on these four walls are the... Um, Right, right beside these doors were stones. And I'll show you one of those stones in a moment. But, so here we have the court of women. Inside that, it's like concentric circles. We get allowed more and more. So the men are allowed into here where they can offer their sacrifices to the priests. There's an altar back in here. And then this uh, cube is the Holy of Holy, the holy place where um, the Ark of the Covenant is. And that's where only a priest could go once a year into the Holy of holy into the presence of God. All right, and so um, this is this is the scene. This is where this is all happening. Um, the selling of the uh, of the in the of uh, the animals. We're out in these courts of the Gentiles, the exchanging of money, um, and that's where Jesus is um, is going haywire a little bit. Um, so if you go to the next slide, on these four, uh, at these doors into the court of women, where, and we've actually found three of these stones. Uh, this is one example. Uh, are, are these inscriptions? No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. So basically beyond the court of the Gentiles. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. Welcome to temple. Hope you enjoy your stay. So that's where all of this is happening. And so um, why was there all of this? Why were they selling, you know, uh, doves and, and, and cattle and, and all of this? Um, and and uh, why were they exchanging money? Well, the, the, like I said, the population of Jerusalem swelled at the time of Passover. And so these, the, the city was full of pilgrims who've, who've traveled a great distance to come and celebrate the feast of Passover and to offer their Passover sacrifice. Some of them from other parts of Israel and others from the whole Jewish diaspora who have been scattered around uh, the Mediterranean area are returning to Jerusalem for the feast. Now, if you've ever traveled with animals, you know that's um, quite a challenge, right? They're not traveling with cats. They're not sacrificing cats, though I'm not opposed to that. Uh, They... That's where I stand. <laughs> they're, they're, they're sacrificing birds. They're sacrificing lambs. They're sacrificing goats. It's a challenge. To, so for the convenience of the pilgrims who traveled to Jerusalem, they could, they, what people would do is they would buy their sacrifice in, when they got to Jerusalem. So they wouldn't have to carry it with them for thousands of miles. All right? And um, 
the currency of the day was a Roman currency, but you couldn't use that to pay your temple tax. You couldn't use that uh, to pay, bring your offering to the temple because it had an inscription of Caesar, which is a, a pagan god. And so there was a, an exchange there was a, into the temple currency that was happening. Now, what's the, so what's the problem? What's the problem with all of this? The problem is that v- until very recently, certainly within the life, lifetime of Jesus, some historians would put it even like one or two years before this event happened. Very recently, the Sadducees, who were the controlling group over the temple, made the decision to move all of that exchange, the buying and selling of animals and the exchanging of money, over from the Mount of Olives, which is where it always had happened, to bring it right into the court of the Gentiles. Very recently. So this is maybe the first or second or third time that this had ever happened in Israel's history. And so the Jews had made a a decision that for the convenience of the Jews, they would do it in the court of the Gentiles. At the expense of the worship of the Gentiles, the Jews brought this trading inside the temple. And so they made worship convenient and accessible for the in-crowd, for the in-group, at the expense of the out-group. Right? You see that. That's, this is where the Gentiles could come and meet with God. And they're saying, we will not cater to those who are not us. And we have these warning stones saying, Gentiles, you can come here, but no further. And you'll have yourself to blame for us killing you for doing so, right? And so D.A. Carson says about this situation, instead of the solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there was the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there was noisy commerce. This was supposed to be a place for people to come and meet with God, to worship God, to adore God, to ascribe worth and value to God, to acknowledge his supremacy above everything And so, of all the places where people could come and do that, the temple was the place for them to come and say, God, you are what my heart is all about. It's a place of confession, of contrition, of praise and joy and celebration. So the temple was all about meeting with God, loving God, honoring God, worshiping God, confessing our sins before God, realigning our hearts with God, and they had turned the temple into Jesus as a market, into the Greek, an emporium. You've turned it into a shopping mall. Not a place of praise and surrender to God, but a place of profit and a place of, of, of commerce. And again, in the place, the only place where non Jews could come and worship and meet with God. And now they can't even do that because it's an emporium, it's a shopping center. So that for them to conduct this commerce, It's not wrong that they were doing this. It was good. But for them to do it where they were doing it was to hinder other people from experiencing God in the temple. It was a practice that deliberately hindered 
other people experiencing God. And so in the other gospel accounts, as Jesus, he, like he said, he may have done this twice. He hated this so much. He says, my father's house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. All nations. That's the heart. That's part of what the temple was there for. It was for the Gentiles to come and meet with God. And Jesus is saying it is God's heart for all people to know him. And Jesus is passionate about that. That all peoples could come and get to know him. And that's what the temple's always been about. When, when Solomon built the first temple, that wasn't this temple, that got destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But when Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem, he, he prays this great prayer. You've got to read it sometime, First Kings chapter 8. But part of that prayer is this. He says, he's praying, he says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When the foreigner comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. You see what Solomon is saying? You see what he's praying He's saying, God, we want you to be at work among Israel, among your people in such a way that, in such a powerful way, in such an obvious way that other people would rise up and take notice that there is a God, that he is alive and he's active among a people. And that they would then call out to you. And that you would hear them and welcome them so that they would come to know you. So that they would come to to walk in your ways just like we do, your people do. That was God's passion for the temple to be a place not just where the people of God could gather to come and worship, but a place where people who are far from God could actually draw near to God and experience God. Friends, that's still God's design for his people. Because if you trace the theme of temple through the scripture, I'll talk about in a moment how Jesus is the great temple. He replaces the temple. And he rises from the dead and he ascends to heaven and he pours out his spirit upon the, his people. And the scriptures now call the people of God the temple. The dwelling place of God on earth is now among the people of God. First Corinthians 3 is one example of this. He says, do you not know that you, all of you, collectively, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, you all? That if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you, you all plural, are that temple. You, we, are the temple of God. We are the place where God's Spirit dwells. And so Ephesians 2 says that in Jesus, and Peter says this as well, that we are being built up together into a temple, into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And so now the church of Jesus, the people of God, has become the temple. And it's still God's desire that we, the people of God, would be a place where people far from God could look and see that God is alive and active and moving among his people and that they could reach out to to him and that he could change them, that he could pour out his mercy and his grace and his compassion on them as well. It's still God's desire that the supernatural power of God would be working among his people so that people far from God could come to know him. That's our prayer, that we would be the kind of people who, who, whose, whose witness is that there is a God. And He is alive and active among a people in Niagara. And He's making His presence known. 
this people of purity, of love and grace and embrace. And so the question for our community that we have to ask ourselves is, are we welcoming people to God? Are we, are we directing people towards God? Or are we diverting them? Are we putting obstacles in the way of people experiencing the, the, the presence and the power, the grace, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus? Are we putting obstacles in the way and say, you have to climb over this first? You've got to learn this language. You've got you to look like this. You've got to dress like this. You've got to um, whatever. Is there an obstacle that we together would be putting in the way? It says that zeal for God's house, zeal for the temple consumed Jesus. And it was that zeal, that passion, that, that driving passion of his life is that people would come to know God. So that's why he did it. So we have some reasons. Though he doesn't quite get into all of it. We have, he has a good reason. And so what's the, what's the glory? Let's talk about the glory of what Jesus did. And I'll be done. Jesus' answer, right? He, he answers them when they ask for a sign. He says, what, they say, what sign do you give? And he says, destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. So he offers them a, a marvelous and incredible sign, right? It's a temple that Herod has been reconstructing. It's taken 46 years to do that. And so if Jesus could actually build it by himself in three days, that's a pretty amazing thing. But John interprets the code for us and says he's actually talking about the temple of his body. He was actually forecasting that he would be dead and buried, but three days later, his temple, his body would rise. That's always the great sign that Jesus points to. It's always the sign that we point to. That when we have skeptics and we have people who are questioning, we always talk about the resurrection. That's where we go. We talk about Jesus' resurrection. We believe there's good reasons for believing that. That's always the sign we, we, we will point to is that Jesus was dead, buried, but he rose again and he's still alive. But Jesus is saying, the temple, this great edifice is no longer needed because here's the temple. That, that he's the place where people come to connect with God. That he's the holy person who offers a sacrifice on behalf of sinful people so that they could be forgiven and cleansed and put back into right relationship with people. What authority do you have, Jesus, to do that? Do you own the temple? You're acting like you own the place. And he's like, own it? I am it. I am the temple. I am the place where God can meet with people. I am the holy man who offers a sacrifice on behalf of people like you so that you can connect with God. Let's pray. Jesus, we lift you up. And we thank you that not only are you our great temple, that through you we can know the provision of of forgiveness and grace and embrace and power that you have also poured your spirit out upon us. So that now we, as the church of Jesus, are this temple on earth. Not in this room, this is not the sanctuary, but our gathering. In our gathering, Lord, that you make yourself known. And that you uh, live among us. And you live in us. And we ask that you would do that. We ask that in our gathering, that you would show yourself to be so good and so great. That in our community, in our church community, Lord, that you would show yourself to be a God who is alive and active and moving 
among this people. And so, Father, we pray that you would do your work among us and so that we would be a community that not that would set barriers and obstacles and hurdles in front of people, but would clear the way, clear the path so people who are far from you could come to know you. So reveal things to us, Lord. Give us that burning passion, that zeal that consumed Jesus. And we, it was the death of him. We know it was the death of him. The zeal to see people come to know him. May that same kind of zeal, that same kind of passion live in us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.